Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 56. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Chris Chow. Chris is a science teacher at Longmont High School in Longmont, Colorado. She currently teaches advanced placement biology and forensic science and coordinates the Medical and Bioscience Academy program. In addition to her teaching, Chris advises a student modeling a research topic or SMART team. Chris is a member of the BSCS NABT AP Biology Leadership Academy and has facilitated multiple workshops for science teachers. Chris received the 2014 Spotlight Award for Excellence in Teaching from St. Vrain Valley Educational Foundation and the 2016 Outstanding Biology Teacher Award in Colorado from the National Association of Biology Teachers. Before entering the classroom, Chris participated in the Human Genome Project as an intern at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory and was a graduate research assistant in nutritional science at the University of Illinois. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Aaron. I'm honored to be here today with you. Great. That is probably the smoothest I've ever read my introduction. So I like... (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't stumble over St. Vrain. I didn't stumble over Longmont. I didn't stumble over anything. So nobody knows that, but how much I edit out my mistakes from the, (laughs) from the introduction. But uh, I was, that was, that was, uh, I was proud of myself for that one. So I (laughs) need to give myself a little credit. So uh, thank you for joining me here on a, on a Sunday now that we're, boy, we're, we're, we're grinding in. How are you a month into school yet or a couple weeks or... We are. I think we're about five weeks into the school year already. Yeah, when this comes out, uh, I will be five weeks in. So I'm not quite that deep. But yeah, it did, it's real. Like we have actual humans in front of us now and uh, the school year is steaming forward. So um, the, for initial thoughts on the year, things going well? Uh, things are going well. I think I have a really great group of students this year. And uh, another fun thing for me is I'm a mom of two teenage girls, and both of them are at the high school that I teach at. Uh, yeah, I have I have one teenage son, but he goes to a different school. So, um, which which has you know its advantages and disadvantages as we try to coordinate the after school activities tomorrow, and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to balance everything. But um, I also like the fact that I get to steal a window into the way another group of teachers does things that's different for me right. and all in good things. Like um, he has to do this, uh, this honors research project. And I, I'm constantly taking the paperwork from, from him and reading it and looking at how they're framing it. Go, yeah, I, I like that part of that. Uh, that seems like a lot of work, but, oh, I like this idea. Um, so just to get that sort of feedback from, what it's like to have a student go through, but, uh, and I'm sure you have the same, I'm sure you have the same feeling, but for me, I, I also having that window of like what it's like to have students doing their homework at home and doing all that stuff. It is this, this extra reminder of the people that you deal with (laughs) on a day-to-day basis. Right. Exactly. It gives you more sympathy, empathy, and uh, insight, I think, on the parent side of things. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, as I said, I've got my first going through now and the second one, Started middle school, so, <clears throat> and um, okay. also, 
also from a policy standpoint, like they're the rules that we're putting in place for homework at my school and the rules that are being put in place, like the guidelines that they're setting up and the efforts they're making. It's kind of fun to watch how they're very much in parallel uh, between the two schools. So That's good to know. Yeah. So it's, it's nice. It's not it's the, that extra perspective. That's great. So, all right, let me get into the question I like to ask everybody um, okay. to get started, which is how okay. did you become a science teacher? What was your your path uh, into the classroom? So originally, I wasn't planning on being a teacher. I wanted to be a doctor. And my plan was to become a pediatrician and probably a pediatric cardiologist. Um, I had uh, a, I was born with a congenital heart defect and mm-hmm. It was repaired when I was in middle school, and I you know, wanted to be able to help people, notably kids. And mm. so my whole path all the way for, in schooling was these things I got to do to try to get into a good college. And once I was in college, I got to do these things to get into <laughs> medical school. Um, but all along the way, though, I think my interest was working with children, with kids. And I did things like taught Sunday school at my church. And in college, I also was a classroom assistant for a uh, the math department and took a class that actually was basically I went into elementary classrooms and was Miss Wizard, you know, from the Mr. <laughs> yeah. Wizard TV show and um, did science experiments with kindergartners and fun things with them um, just to supplement the science being taught in the elementary schools. And I found that I really enjoyed those experiences. And uh, my senior year of college, I was applying to medical schools and preparing to go into the stage of interviewing and realized, you know, I think I want to work with students in a totally different way. And um, so I decided not to go to med school. And the after I graduated college, I moved back home with my parents and um, thought, well, could I really hack it in the classroom? and went to be a substitute teacher at my former high school. (laughs) And uh, at the time, my brother was still a student in the high school. (laughs) And so it was both uh, mortifying and terrifying to him to have me as as a sub in his school. But for me, I had the chance to uh, work with some of my former teachers and to be mentored by them. Um, one of them was uh, my former AP biology teacher, Fred Holtzclaw, oh. and uh, he allowed me to. Yeah, <laughs> do you do you know Fred? Um, I briefly met Teresa Holtzclaw this this year, but I know the name. <laughs> yeah, so I was one of his students twenty five years ago, and uh, he I'll, um had to take a leave of absence for a week and I got to teach his AP bio classes for a week and that was a lot of fun and I took a long-term sub position with my former calculus teacher and um, as and uh, so I, I found that I really enjoy the interactions with students building relationships with them not just popping in and out for one day but um, and I thought you know if I can handle what you know, kids throw at substitute teachers uh, <laughs> and the way they treat them. Um, I think this this might be, be something I really want to pursue. Uh, so I went back to um, the University of Illinois and got my master's in education, my certification to teach, and uh, have been doing it since 
2000 with uh, a little break in between to be a stay-at-home mom. Wow. Yeah, when you were first telling the story about working with kids, I had this vision of like, wait, how did she go from being like working in elementary schools and working with elementary school students and being, you know, uh, you know, Miss Wizard, as you were, as you were sort of saying there, into a high school. But it makes sense that if you went and did the the subbing and then got the classroom exposure there, that you could see that that transition. Um, so, what's the transition from Illinois out to Colorado? How does how did that jump take place? Right. So my husband, his job um, took him to Arizona. So I did teach in Arizona for a couple of years. And then we moved to Colorado for another position that he had. And at the time, I was a stay-at-home mom, so I was really flexible and mobile to move. Um, but what we were here in Colorado for a couple of years, and I really missed classroom teaching. Um, and both my daughters at the time had just finished potty training. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this might be a good time to sort of step back into the classroom. And uh, I was just looking at the want ads um, on the school district website and saw a part-time science teacher. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm fine being a stay-at-home mom. I'm not, it was also September, school had already started. And um, I had interviewing skills. So I applied for the job and I got asked for an interview and, um, and then got offered a job with them. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I completely was unprepared to go back to the classroom, but uh, they were really um, gracious and um, really wanted me to, to work at that school and said, well, we'll give you about a week you know, or, or two to figure out your childcare situation, but how about if you come in and just teach one class a day? And these we were on the four by four block system at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, okay, I think I could you know, go back for... 90 minutes or a couple hours a day. And um, that was the start of now at Longmont High School. Yeah, I'm, I'm envisioning what, what happens when we have somebody who suddenly needs to take a long-term sub and the idea that we'd have somebody who is experienced, who's taught in multiple states, who has a background in the classroom, who's like willing to come back and, and start up. I think we would bend over backwards to try to, <laughs> like, how could we make this work for you? Because... Uh, 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 because you had a wealth of experience coming in to get started. So that's uh, that's great. And so then you obviously transitioned from a part-time teacher into a full-time teacher once again over those next few years, I would imagine. I did. Once my kids were in elementary school all day, um, it was easier for me to be able to commit to being a full-time teacher. Yeah. So um, as I mentioned in the introduction, you are an advisor. So now you're back in class and you you lead a lot of different things. And, and we could talk about a lot of the different uh, extra things that you do in the classroom. But uh, I'm particularly interested in the, the SMART program, uh, the SMART team that you um, – I know you shared your experience with members of the AP community This uh, at the AP Read. Um, you are posting. I saw a picture of you posted on uh, I don't know if it was Facebook or somewhere. It was like, how many protein models is too many protein models and a giant <laughs> cart of all of these uh, 3D proteins that you had. And I participated in a week-long uh, workshop last summer. Um, so I'm curious, how did you get involved with uh, the protein modeling and smart teams uh, and the folks over at MSOE? Right. Um, so my friend, Cindy Gay, who's mm-hmm. a fellow 
biology teacher here in Colorado called me one day and said, hey, I'm going to put together this training in Colorado and we need a school location um, to host this workshop. And it was, it was uh, what Cindy was going to do is fly out Shannon Colton from the Center for Biomolecular Modeling. She was the uh, director of the SMART teams and Cindy's high school students wanted to start a SMART team and, and they needed training. And so initially Cindy said, can we borrow your classroom? And then she, she asked, hey, do you and your students want to <laughs> join in and see what this is about? Uh, so really that's how I got started. I, I really hadn't heard of the Center for Biomolecular Modeling. Um, I had seen many of the uh, 3D molecular designs kits um, mm -hmm. and their modeling kits at conferences, but um, I didn't really know much about smart teams. So on a Saturday in October, about six years ago, um, I gathered a group of my students and Cindy brought her students from Steamboat Springs, Colorado, and um, we received a whole day of training. And that was really the beginning of of our adventure into studying about proteins. So did you, after that, uh, after that first one, have you ventured up to Milwaukee um, for some of their summer workshops and other workshops after that point? I have. So since that point, um, anytime I would uh, go to NABT conferences, I'd sit in on their workshops and try to purchase, you know, different models, uh, modeling kits they had. But a uh, couple of years ago, I had a chance to go up to uh, Milwaukee to their um, Genes, Genomes, and Personalized Medicine yeah. uh, workshop. And that was a really great week-long PD experience. Um, took home so many nuggets of information, as I imagine you, you probably did from your week with them. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Spending a week with Tim up there. <laughs> Having Tim, Tim tell his stories. Right. And, you know, and some of his quotes, I, I pass on to my kids, um, you know, quotes like, um, life is complicated. Life is, as, I had, that was the one in my head when you said his quotes, I was thinking life is complicated. Have you got life the life is, is complicated? Com yeah. Have you got the life is complicated poster that he, they put out? I do. Um, yeah. I, I have that first poster and they created a new one this summer with yeah. the CRISPR-Cas9 protein on there. Oh, I think so, I might have the old one. I don't yeah. Think I, I don't have, I think I have the CRISPR one. So uh, you're you're going to have to hit them up for a, a <laughs> CRISPR poster. <laughs> yeah. But well, uh, I'm, I'm hoping to go to, for their CRISPR workshop if I can get in one of these summers. So. Yeah. I And I spent uh, a week there this past summer, my second week in Milwaukee for the CRISPR workshop. Oh. Um so I can tell you it's something that'll be uh, really great to, to attend. Yeah. So, and you were, was, was that with Valerie May? Was she one of the ones in that workshop? It was. Valerie was there. There was also um, Kathy Van Hook and uh, yeah. um, Sherry, is it Annie uh, or Annie? Yeah, Annie. Yeah, Sherry Annie. Yeah. Sher Sherry Annie. So a lot of uh, teachers, Carrie Shingleton, um, mm -hmm who I've familiar, I was familiar with them through the AP Bio Facebook community, but finally got to meet them in person, which was uh, neat to be able to just, you know, talk to them and hear, you know, what they're teaching about and to connect with them. Um, plus all the great CRISPR science. That was a bonus. 
So now next summer you're going back, but you're not going back to Milwaukee. You're going to go out to California, right? You're going out to um, the Doudna Lab for year two. We are. We're going to Berkeley yeah. uh, to visit the Doudna Lab and to dive deeper into understanding CRISPR and uh, what they're doing at the Doudna Lab in terms of applications of the CRISPR-Cas9 system. Yeah, that's an amazing, amazing opportunity. Um, to go out there. So now that you've had this like refresher sort of this summer and you're continuing with your smart team this year. Correct. Yeah. So, so how do you think that these experiences like the going to Milwaukee and going with the smart team and, and the years of experiences, what is it, what is it like to run a smart team? So, you know, I, I've gone to Milwaukee, I've got that background. I've, you know, uh, I've spent some time. I've got my hands on those. I actually have started toying around with printing like my first couple of models and I'm um, trying to hook up with other people in my schools to 3D print uh, stuff. What is the the workflow for you in getting your students to engage with this high level modeling? Well, we first of all, I want to uh, try to recruit students who are interested in diving deeper in biology and chemistry. Um, you know, these are usually students who haven't sort of found their niche yet at our high school and who are maybe sort of a little bit on the nerdy side um, <laughs> and that they don't mind investing extra time outside of the normal class day to read scientific papers and to discuss science and um, learn these skills needed to model proteins in 3D. Um, so I've got a range of students from freshmen all the way to seniors. Uh, initially, I tried to recruit students from AP biology and AP chemistry classes, thinking mm -hmm. that they had that solid foundation and we could build upon that. Um, but I found that it's, it's really neat to have under, uh, you know, underclassmen because they'll be able to continue in the SMART team program for several years. Um, and while when they start as freshmen, the science is, feels like it's way above their heads, we, um, my co-advisor, Dick Martyr, and I uh, really help students to be able to sort of digest and break down um, the deeper science from these scientific papers that we read. Um, and we really scaffold the learning so that it's accessible for freshmen and sophomores. That's, that's neat. I, uh, I work with a biobuilder group, which is got some of the same same dynamics it's synthetic biology so um, i had a very when you said you know i, I tried to start right recruiting juniors and seniors ap biology i think when i started my group that's exactly what i thought was oh this you know freshmen wouldn't want to do this or sophomores wouldn't want to do they'd be intimidated by the science and too much but um i've seen firsthand in a in a different setting that they're, these are kids who, just like you said, they're nerdy. They, they want to learn. They don't know everything, but mm -hmm. they want to, they actually want to walk in the footsteps of some older students. Um, it's a little bit of that sort of, it's almost like passive mentoring. Um, they know that someday they want to be an AP chem, AP biology student. And so to come in and work in a group with students who are AP biology and AP chemistry lets them sort of visualize this is what it looks like to be a student who engages in this type of extracurricular um, a few years a few years down the line. So. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, for the for some of them, they they um, come to the smart team meetings uh, a few weeks or a few months and and find out uh, they're overwhelmed and it's really mm -hmm. not their interest. Um, for others, they really dig deeper and show. Um, perseverance in their learning. And I think that's a great 
quality trait to foster in students. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just getting ready to kick off my group and I had, uh, we have our extracurricular fair. So my, I just, my student leaders and there were 43 kids who signed up to be interested in my, my, my nerdy little club. And I was like, gosh, I hope they all don't stick. <laughs> I hope they were all just a little <laughs> interested. Uh, cause I don't know if I can run a club with 43 kids who want to run <laughs> projects like that. Uh, and I imagine a smart team would be the same way that it's one thing when it's 20 is a lot, 20 is a lot to dive deep in there and then make sure that you're, you're connecting with them and letting, you know, really letting them go down their paths, but also supporting them while they're doing that. Um, I would have to get like a couple of co-advisors if I, if, if 43 of them end up sticking um, into the clubs. So. Right. What do you find is a, a good number of students to work with? So, so in the past, the, the group, it sort of describes like what you're saying. Like usually what I get is I get about somewhere between 12 and 15 kids would show up at the, show up at the beginning of the year. Um, they go through the first couple of activities, which is like learning the basics um, of the science. And then we'd get to the brainstorming activities and start coming up with project ideas. And then we'd get right into the middle of the winter and then mid-years would show up and then our numbers would dwindle down. And I would end up with somewhere between eight and 12 kids who are like my really hardcore group. Who, and that's who the people who push our project through, who they're the group who they're, they're sort of like our self-selected varsity team, if you will. Um, you know, there's no cutting. I don't tell kids, you know, can't show up or anything like that. But just the the natural attrition of the school year and the pacing and the interest level, that's usually what it is. And then last year, um, the similar thing happened, except for then we started a bigger number and I just didn't lose as many. Um, I had 20 kids showing up through March. Uh, like still engage. And so we actually did two projects last year because we genuinely, there, there were too many students to do a single project. So we branched and did two. And, um, and it was, you know, um, I put a lot of ownership on the students. So like I could make it so there was a lot of work for me, but I basically told them, this is your club. You guys have to be in charge of these things. I'm here to support you. And so I'd check in with them. What are your needs? What are your questions? What are your things? And then we also have a, um, some mentoring that comes outside of the school, either a graduate student who's in synthetic biology or somebody who works in the field who is another point person for questions. Um, and it worked pretty well. So I would say in individual teams or individual projects, I can do like somewhere between eight and 12. And then if it's more than that, you got to kind of split them into two teams. Is the SMART program a, a similar thing or how big do you guys get? Yes, I've, I've had teams from five to seven students. And I think that's a really effective working group size. Um, I've has have as many as 20. And I think similar to you, I think eight to 12 is a good size number. Um, we break up in terms of the smart team, there's different tasks that we try to accomplish throughout the year. Um, one of them being um, reading scientific papers. Um, and on that protein that we are working on, modeling it in 3D, and then we write an abstract, which is about 200 to 250 words long, um, to summarize the protein story. And um, if we want to continue on with that project, we develop a poster and um, tell a greater story of it and include some of the, the data that goes with the discoveries of that particular protein. Um, and all, all throughout that time as a SMART team, uh, we have a research mentor. So we work with a scientist at uh, CU Boulder, University of Colorado at Boulder, and he's a professor in the biophysics department, and he has several different proteins that he is researching. So uh, every year we've picked a different one mm -hmm. uh, to study, 
And uh, so this year we are going to be studying the RAS protein. Oh, so tell us a little bit. What's a what's a little quick overview of what RAS protein uh, is? Yeah, so the RAS protein is a proto oncogene, and it's been linked to probably over thirty percent of cancers, and it, with a mutation in the RAS uh, protein that causes cells to divide out of control. And so I think uh, he is Dr. Falky. Uh, who we're working with is studying the pathway of the RAS protein and, or one of the pathways that RAS is involved in. Okay. That's so, so, um, so I can see that there's like, as you said, there's a lot of different tasks that you have to do. So having, you know, you need multiple hands in there, but, um, there's a, there's a right size to the number of hands for the tasks that are, at, um, that you need to accomplish in there. Um, and do you guys go and present at the end of the year somewhere, or do you virtually present your poster somewhere? Well, um, our, we have a couple of different venues that we have presented at. Um, one of them uh, is that our school has a medical and bioscience academy, and our seniors have a senior capstone project uh, that summarizes their internship experiences. And we have each student, uh, each senior graduating in the program, create a poster, and we have a all those posters are out there and we invite the public to come in. And so our smart team puts up a poster too. And we um, share about our protein project that year. Um, but the other, other place that our students uh, have really benefited from presenting at is ASBMB, which is the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. And they have an undergraduate poster session and uh, some of the smart teams uh, have been able to put their posters up alongside these undergraduates who've been doing research at the universities um, to be able to share about their protein projects. And so it gives students the opportunity to see what other high school students and other smart teams are studying um, to network with these kids, but also to they go around and look at what the, uh, the posters from these undergrads uh, look like and to talk to these these um, students who are going to be at the next level where these, where a lot of these smart team students want to go into research. And so this is sort of, they're, they're eyeing the future that they, this is what they want to aspire to. Um, but there's also professors and other researchers um, who are there at this poster session and at this conference and our students have a chance to talk to them. Um, I have one student who happened to run into a researcher who's doing um, infectious disease research at uh, St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital in mm -hmm. Memphis. And she got his card. And uh, the following year, she went off to college. She connected with this researcher, and he invited her to spend the summer to do research in his lab in Memphis. And nice. so the SMART team um, program was just sort of the beginning of opening up the world to protein research for her. And she's found out through smart teamwork, what she's studying at her, her school and through her summer research experience with this professor in Memphis that this is her passion and she wants to continue uh, with studying proteins and um, uh, researching infectious diseases. Wow, that's neat. It's, a, it's, a, it's great to get the kids to have those opportunities and yeah. to see that networking. Um, I was going to ask because 
Uh, I was going to ask about the sort of the informal presentations and how that really does help the students. But I think that's that story tells how that those informal presentation skills that the students work on when they get to present those posters end up uh, leading to some big dividends down the road. So that's cool. All right. I'm going to I'm going to transition from our after school activities and our extracurriculars into your actual class. And um, I actually uh, it was. It's so funny. I always talk about the stalking that I do before we get online. Uh, you're the first person who ever told me that you stalked me back, which was interesting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sort of get some information about me before you agreed to come on this. Um, but uh, but I, I, you know, you search and I will see your name and PowerPoints associated on other teachers' websites. And in fact, I have a friend who teaches in Florida. And one of the things he asked me, it was like, oh, did, have you ever have you ever interviewed um, Chris? Because I, I, I've been using all of her PowerPoints. And I'm like, no, but I'm going to add her to the list of people I should talk to. So um, I, I could ask you, like, why are all your PowerPoints everywhere? But I don't know that you know the answer to why your PowerPoints <laughs> are everywhere. Because um, I, I know that people still use some of my stuff that's everywhere. But I guess the better question is, like, how do you use... PowerPoint in your classroom. I, I I feel like I don't use presentation tools the same way I did 10, 15 years ago. And I know yours are being out there everywhere and lots of people are using them. So how do you use PowerPoint in your classroom? You know, do you use them for class discussions or as homework or as a, in your traditional lecture? What are these things that are out there everywhere being used? What do they look like in your practice? Right. Well, I originally created them, um, you know, as the traditional lectures, as direct instruction. And I started teaching AP Biology nine years ago. So at that time, it was, uh, you know, a portion, a large portion of my class with these, yeah. these lectures. And, and I wanted to make sure and, uh, that students had all the information they needed um, on, you know, a simple format like PowerPoint. So I don't put a lot of details in there because during class, I will tell stories. I will elaborate. I'll have diagrams uh, on the PowerPoint slides that I want to highlight, and I spend time talking about them. Um, and I put them all up on a Google site uh, with the intention that my students, if they missed a class, could go there and download the PowerPoint and be able to catch up with you know notes that they're writing in their notebook. And I guess what I've discovered is because I opened it to the public that other teachers did that Google search and stumbled upon my site for my students. And I think that's how it happened. <laughs> um, ironically, since then, none of my students ever go to that Google site anymore. Uh, we, we now use Schoology as a learning management uh, program, software program. And so um, all my things for my students are on Schoology now. Yeah. And, but I, but I've kept my Google site uh, going and updated things, knowing that there are other teachers in the country who are going to that page to utilize those resources. So uh, that's that's the irony of that. Um, but but I think I'm I'm really um, glad I have the opportunity to kind of talk online with you about these PowerPoints because I have so many teachers who are using them. And I don't want to give them the impression that all I do in my class, the entire 90 minutes every day I meet with my students, is just slideshows of these PowerPoints and I just drone on and talk to talk <laughs> at students. Um, I think there definitely is a place for direct instruction. Um, you know, the intricacies of cellular respiration and all those pieces. Uh, so there are some things where you just have to 
uh, give direct instructions for students. But so for, for my classroom, I spend about one fourth of my time with these traditional lectures. And I try to use the other three fourths of the time to uh, present the material and have students interact with the content in different ways. So probably a lot of, uh, you know, AP biology teachers have mentioned great resources like poll goals, um, mm -hmm. using case studies. Um, I use a lot of the models from 3D molecular designs and, um, you know, and then opportunities for students to also use their iPads because we have, uh, we are one-to-one -one and mm -hmm. students have one of those large size iPads. So um, I use apps. Um, the kids use the HHMI click and learns. Mm -hmm. So definitely my classroom is very um, sort of blended in terms of some traditional things like PowerPoints and handouts, but also uh, online activities and interactive things. Um, I also, you know, take these same PowerPoints and throw them into Nearpod and create Nearpod presentations so it's more interactive for students. Did you say Nearpod? Yes. All right. I, you've now dropped something, and I'm like, in the back recesses of my head, I'm like, I know what that is. I've heard that. All right. Tell me what that is. What's Nearpod? Okay. So Nearpod is a presentation system where you can, you can create, it's like a slideshow, and you basically, all the kids have to have a device and you oh, okay. push this uh, presentation out to the students' devices. So all they can see is this presentation. So they can't be playing games or texting <laughs> or anything else on their device. Um, but Nearpod allows you to be able to not just have, uh, you know, still shots of your images or slides, but interactive components such as quizzes. You can put in a poll. Um, I have a presentation on photosynthesis and I have students draw and label a chloroplast. And you can also then take what the students have on their screens and display it to the rest of the class. So, Neat. so if students drew some picture and I, or um, for example, if there's a genetics problem and students showed their work and, and wrote on the screen what they're doing, um, I can pick one student's work and display it to all the other kids and, and talk about it. So um, the other cool thing is they have, you can embed videos. So you can have the students click to the next slide and then they're all watching the little, little video on their device. Um, and one neat feature is a 3D field trip. Um, so I, I did this lesson on something in ecology. And so I could embed this uh, field trip to some coral reef. And so when, when kids have their device, they could actually uh, rotate the device physically and look like they're plunked, <laughs> you know, in the middle of this coral reef and they're one of the yeah. divers in there. <laughs> That's very cool. So, and that, is this like, a, so is this an app or is this a, um, how does this, how does this work? You said everyone has a device, so it is definitely one-to-one -one, and you are in an iPad one-to-one -one system. So is it? integrated through the iPad or the Apple Store, or do you not know? <laughs> right. Uh, I believe Nearpod, well, it is an app, and then yeah. it's, uh, you can also log into it from your laptop computer okay. and um, create your slideshows or your, your presentations there. And um, yeah, so I, I find it to be really interactive. You can take any PowerPoint presentation you have and you know, embed additional components into it and make it 
a, a much more interactive uh, experience. Yeah. Well, in like 25 years when my district goes to one-to-one, um, I, uh, I don't have a lot of faith that they're going to get there anytime soon, but, <laughs> uh, it's good to know about these types of resources because, um, I think that is actually one of the, the concerns that I hear from people with device, with students with devices in my school and our student, we have a bring your own device system is our school system at the moment. So there are students with devices, but it's, it's not a, it's not a one-to-one. It's not, you know, a lot of our school districts around here, you're either doing, Chromebooks for every student or iPad. I think Chromebooks or iPads are probably the two most common, um, and Chromebook seems to be even more popular around here uh, lately. Mm. Um, and I look around and I see my friends who are in these one-to-one districts, and they're doing some cool stuff. Um, so I, when I hear about stuff like this, it it allays the fears for me in terms of students, teachers saying, oh, the students will just be on their devices doing their own thing and they won't be paying attention. And my thing is, well, if they're doing that, your class is boring. Um, so we need to find ways of digitally engaging them so that that's there. And this this uh, Nearpod sounds like could be the kind of thing that if we start to work down that line, this would be the kind of thing we'd want to show people to say, here, here's a, a transition from the traditional stand in front of the room to a more active environment, utilizing the technology, not to replace what you've always done, but to enhance what you've always done, to make it more engaging, to do it in a better way. So um, it sounds like a really cool, really cool tool. So Right. You know, the neat thing is um, almost every student has a cell phone and you can pretty much uh, utilize their cell phones for this. They don't need an iPad for this. So Initially, when I started using Nearpods, um, I, we weren't a one-to-one school, and so I just had students pull their cell phones out, and they could access it through their phones. All right. You now have given me another toy. Like I'm gonna drive my I drive my colleagues crazy with all my new toys, but I'm definitely gonna have to I'm gonna have to be researching Nearpod now going forward because um, I uh, my my solution for the the lecture sort of the lecture discussion flip that I've done is I do a lot of chalk marker discussions. So like on mm-hmm. just the last Friday, um, we had a traditional slideshow of information on you know, population ecology in honors biology. And what I did is I condensed it down into six slides with a series of questions about them. Now they've already done their homework, so they should know the difference between logistic growth and exponential growth. They should know the difference between dependent um, and independent um, limiting factors. They should know, you know, these these things that were, were already accomplished ideally through homework learning objectives. But I put them in groups with a chalk marker and I say, write the answers out to these. And then I have them rotate around and see the different groups' answers. And then they have their own chalk marker in a different color so they can add details or provide feedback. And then when we get back, we do a share out. And I have the groups. We have a spokesperson from each group share out the answers. Um, and we have a chance for people to ask questions and discussions. And we can do that in a single period uh, to do that. But that's honors. And it's for simple topics. And I do think there's a ceiling. I find that with my AP students, I have a harder time doing that unless it's like a really intro type topic. Because for something that's a little bit more detailed or intricate, they need to have a little bit more sustained walkthrough than mm-hmm. I can provide them in that in that venue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been thinking about what that means. Does it mean a more you know traditional stand in front of the room discussion? which is good, but I think looking at some of these type of toys might be a, an interesting way of doing it. And we do have Chromebooks and, or phones or their own devices, and I might be able to make this access to everybody. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. 
I, cool. I think another, uh, you know, there's so many great resources out there. I also uh, use ones where students post their ideas on a post-it-like type of online board and, and they can text in their answer. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and then I, from my laptop computer, can display their answers. And so that's sort of a digital, uh, you know, brainstorming whiteboard. But yeah, your your idea of those chalk markers—they've they've totally revolutionized uh, group learning in my classroom <laughs> in the last couple of years, as well as Play-Doh. I try to use as much Play-Doh activities as possible. Yeah, yeah. I want I got to bring the Play-Doh back. I did when I taught bioethics. Um, I had like three or four Play-Doh activities where I'd have kids do um, embryology basic embryology, work their way through Play-Doh and the different, you know, different cell stages and layers. And and we talked about that and how it led to, you know, stem cell technology. And we definitely did that. And I had a couple of other ones, but I I don't think I haven't gone back to the Play-Doh in a while. So I'm gonna have to uh, dive in. I've been seeing several teachers post uh, like piles of Play-Doh that they found. Great deal on Play-Doh at Target. And there's like a shopping cart and it's like full of Play-Doh. So, uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've used it to model, um, cellular respiration and had kids use their devices, whether iPhones or iPads and create a stop motion video. So that was a yeah. lot of fun for kids. Yeah. The stop motion is another cool, cool tool that I have. I, I have pulled a few apps down for myself to play around with that. Um, I've been thinking about doing stop motion as a, like a, a group assignment and giving like a handful of, of projects to do along that. I think an AP, um, I saw somebody do an AP review where they had a handful of topics that they thought would be good stop motion topics and they let kids pick which one they wanted to do or pairs or groups of three to do the stop motion. Um, and Play-Doh would be a great, would be a great way of doing that. So neat. All right. So perfect. We've generated lots of nice little ideas. Um, so, uh, before we get into like you outside the class and questions and picks, um, what are you looking forward to? I mean, we talked a lot about sort of the background and where you've built up to today, but um, you've got many years ahead of you in the classroom. What are you looking forward to in your classroom in the years to come? I think um, one of the things I'm really working on is really integrating technology into my classroom and connecting my students to the greater scientific world outside of just Longmont High School. And um, I think the Smart Teams program is sort of an introduction to that. Um, but I, I definitely want to connect students with the, with the world. Um, maybe, you know, to network with other students, to see what other students are doing. And I think it makes it easier having uh, one-to-one iPads at my school. But, you know, every kid has a, a phone in their hands. You know, almost every student does. And so I... I always look for ways to be able to utilize phones for good, not for time wasters. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so those are some things. Uh, but I, I also just want to be able to help students um, be able to see, you know, broader experiences and opportunities for them besides just the traditional, um, you know, career options for them because there's so many niches that are being created, new things. For example, in, in the biology world, um, bioinformatics and biostatistics. And, and so that's a whole new uh, field that we didn't you know, have as an opportunity when we were in high school. Um, so those are some of the things I'm looking forward to, to being able to expose my students to. Yeah. And to me, it's when we look at the 
the the stuff that to, that projecting forward in the vision. Um, I think I teach, you know, and I think this comes with the territory when you teach sort of nerdy students or AP students or students who are who are very good at school. Um, you'll get a lot of kids who are pretty fixed. Like they think I'm on this path. I'm going to do this and then I'm going to go to med school afterward, after college, and I'm going to go to this. Or um, they have this idea of that being good at school in is sort of their identity um, and that they need to be aware that like you just enjoy the moment that you're in, be aware of all of these diversities and don't block off opportunities down the line because you've decided I am this thing this fixed identity. Um, and I think a lot of the mental health and stress issues that we see in our school, um, at least and I can only speak for personally about what we talk about with the mental health is actually when kids start to doubt themselves a little bit, they've got this fixed identity and they have doubts or they struggle in something. And because they have such this fixed idea about who they are, they don't have a lot of resiliency in this area. But if you, can show them like this world of possibilities and it's this open world of possibilities not that you have to follow this particular path to get to this this end that you're going on but look at all of these options and opportunities and possibilities and um you know keep creating opportunities for yourself so that you're open to these things um perhaps we can make a more uh, you know a a more mentally healthy way for students to think about achievement. <laughs> I think um, I think that's sort of one of those things I've been struggling with a lot in the last few years where I want my students to feel like driven, but I also don't want the drive to be a negative. I want the drive to be positive. Right. Uh, and uh, I don't know, I don't know why it, I, I don't know where that balance is <laughs> or how that balance works. Um, I don't know that I felt ever the type of stress that I know some of my students are, feel um, when it comes to academics and getting into college and that sort of thing. Um, and I, I wonder sometimes if it's about how things get framed in terms of like college readiness and APness and you know, where you have to go for the next six, eight years of college after you graduate. So, um, yeah. Right. I, I, I definitely agree with you. I feel that students are a little bit more stressed nowadays and it seems just 15 years ago and I don't know if it's that there are so many options for students. They don't know what to pick. Um, for my own daughter, she's a junior in high school right now. And she's good at a lot of things, uh, different things, and excels in school. Um, but there really isn't one particular passion she has yet. And, and she's feeling the self-pressure of, I feel like I have to choose something. If I'm going to college, I have to know what I'm doing so that mom and dad aren't wasting all the money <laughs> to send me to college. Um, so we're just trying to reinforce for her, you know, relax. Like we want you to explore these different things. And I think something will percolate to the surface, you know, and your, if not now, your college experiences will help to guide you. Yeah. Well, when I have students who say things like that to me, I will give the Mr. Matthew advice um, they sh that your daughter should go to the biggest, cheapest school she can get into. Um, <laughs> that way you don't have to worry about wasting the money and there'll be a lot of different choices for you. Um, that's my, uh, that's my usual advice for students. And they're like, I don't know, should I go to this school or this school? And I was like, do you know a hundred percent what you want to do? And you have no doubt whatsoever. I was like, okay, well then you're wrong. You should go to the biggest, cheapest school you want to go into, uh, that you get into. That's, that's how I usually tell my students to, to pick their colleges, but, um. I agree. We uh, That's completely why I picked the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Yeah. It was on the uh, U.S. News and World Report or Money Magazine, like 
best deals for colleges <laughs> at the time. And I thought, well, I, I wanted to be a bio major. My parents wanted me to be engineering. And so I thought, well, I'll compromise and, and get a degree in bioengineering. And, you know, it turns out it's a great school to, to pick a different major if, if what you started with isn't, isn't your cup of tea. Yeah. And I, that's, that's the experience that I've had from, you know, working with students who go off to college and come back that a lot of the students, they have this idea, this certainty at, you know, 16, 17, 18 of where they're going to go down. And the reality is it's unfair to expect a 16 year old or 17 year old to have a perfect plan. Do I have students who at 16 know what they want to do? And that's ultimately what they do. Absolutely. But more often than not, they go to college and then they're going to have these experiences and whether it's, through certain classes or it's through some extracurriculars or it's through like a study abroad program or it's through an internship, something is going to, they're going to find the thing that lights a fire under them and they may or may not have ever had that experience at 16 or 17 to really know what their passion is. Um, and it's great when they have, but it's not reasonable to expect all 16 and 17 year olds have. So go to a place where you're going to have lots of opportunity and exposure. Um, I also sometimes say, you know, Go to the biggest, the you know least expensive school you're comfortable in as well, because some students go, and we have this around here. You know, we have large schools in the city, and we have you know UMass Amherst, which I'm an alumni alumni of, which is people say is in the middle of nowhere, which I take a little personally because it was my hometown. Um, <laughs> and there's a lot of cows there, and from if you're used to the city, it does seem like it's the middle of nowhere. But um, when people go, like you go to these different schools, and they get a feeling there. So I have some students who go into the city and they go to a place like Boston University or Northeastern or um, and they or Boston College. Boston College is a little bit more out, but both Boston University and uh, Northeastern are right in the city. And I have some students who, even though we're only 35, 40 minutes outside the city, they don't go into the city a lot. And they, they, see, the, they see the public transportation and they see the busy roads and all the cars and all the people. And they literally don't feel comfortable there. And it's like, you shouldn't go to that school. If you go to a school and you're walking around and you feel like uncomfortable there, that may not be the best place for your learning. Um, if you have, you know, if like, if you think that the school's a good match, you need to feel comfortable there in order to, to really get into that position. Um, similarly, I've had students who go out to schools where they like go out in the middle of nowhere in these like very wooded, picturesque New England schools of a couple of thousand students. And they are like, it seemed like it might be a little boring. And I was like, <laughs> all right, if you're worried about being a little bored there and you talk to the students and you didn't connect and it didn't click, uh, you know, take that as information, like use that as information before you make these decisions. Because a lot of students end up transferring, I find, when their their first instinct is not 100 um, percent jiving with those schools. So, uh, all right, I'm, I'm starting to get this stress, too, because my my oldest is a sophomore. <laughs> Right. Well, that's good advice. And uh, yeah, we actually this spring break, we're taking our, our daughters to visit your neck of the woods. We're going to go to uh, New York and Boston yeah. uh, to check out some schools there as they've not really been exposed to really big cities. Uh, being in Colorado, Longmont is kind of a cow town okay. and we've got cornfields surrounding us. We have Denver, but uh, yeah, New York and Boston is a different world. And and I think if they want to apply to those schools, they definitely should get a feel for the campuses and the, yeah. those cities. Yeah. And as somebody who grew up in that little cow town, I loved the city. Like, 
<laughs> I always loved the city. I went. I remember being in New York City with people, and they were like, "They're like, why do you feel so comfortable?" I was like, "I don't know why I feel comfortable here, but I've always felt comfortable in the in you know New York and in Boston." And and Boston is not a big city. Like that's the other thing that the kids are talking to me, and they're like, "They're like, oh yeah, it's, it's so many people in the city." I was like, "Boston's Boston's a speck um, in terms of city. Like you can walk from one side of Boston to the other in like 15 minutes. It's really just a it's a great city. I love it, but it's not a big city." in by any stretch of the imagination so uh, yes but definitely beautiful I am I think we are starting to t- we're starting to have our initial conversations that at the end of sophomore year coming up with that list to start to go visit during new year like what are the places we want to see what are the types of schools and and that sort of thing um, we definitely are spoiled out here because within a car ride from where I am you can get like I am less than yeah I am less than five hours from our house we can go to University of Maine, University of New Hampshire, University of Vermont, UMass Amherst, uh, UConn, URI, and pretty much all of the schools that are in that circle. Um, get it? We can get down to New York. We can get out to Albany. We could Syracuse is I think about six hours out, but yeah, like you can get. Wow. You know, from where we are, there's you know there are hundreds and hundreds of schools of varieties and sizes and and that sort of thing. So um, I think the college visiting and, and demographics and what a different schools of different sizes and different um, locations feel like you get a lot of that in this area. It's, it's actually fairly easy to get that exposure. So, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm certainly going to get it in a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, when you're not teaching, what do you like to do? Well, living out here in Colorado, it's, it's uh, natural to want to just enjoy the the scenery, the landscape here in Colorado. So with, with my husband and two daughters, we really enjoy camping and hiking and uh, all the outdoor activities. You can't live in Colorado and stay indoors all the time. You got to get out there and enjoy it. And so wintertime, we enjoy skiing and uh, summer, we enjoy whitewater rafting and um, just getting out there. I think uh, where we live is a special place, uh, which is why maybe kids from your neck of the woods I want to head out to the West where there is a lot of wide open space. And, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of students tend to come here, college students, because they came to Colorado as a kid somewhere uh, sometime and had really fond memories of the outdoors and being out here. And so then they want to go to college here and, and then end up settling here. (laughs) Yeah. I could, as you're talking, I'm visualizing all of the pictures that uh, Paul Strode push, uh, posts of his his view from his desk of the mountains in the background. And yeah, he does. His high school is right at the base of the Flatirons. And so you could pretty much leave the front door of his school and take a hike up the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Colorado seems like a, I, I, I don't know, it's it's hard to boggle my mind because I know how big the states are out there. Um, <laughs> I know a lot of Colorado teachers, and in my mind, like all the Massachusetts teachers, they're like, you know, Todd Ryan and I teach, you know, 20 minutes apart, you know, like <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, but I know that in Colorado, it's a, it's a slightly bigger state and teachers are a little more spread out between between each other for those resources. So... All right. So uh, before we get to picks of the episode, do you have any questions for me? Well, I I don't know if you've talked a little bit about this in other podcast episodes, but I want to hear more about this uh, um, 
the biology team that you have and what kinds of, of things, projects that you worked on with your students? Yeah, so I work, um, I do, a, I run a biobuilder club, or I should say I mentor a biobuilder club. Um, and the origin of biobuilder was um, Natalie Caldell, uh, who's a, a professor at MIT, um, started this program about, I guess it was about eight years ago now, where she brought high school teachers in and she taught us the basics of synthetic biology. Um, and then she put together a couple of like experimental kits that highlight the basic fundamentals of how you can take engineering principles and apply them into biology. And so it's a, definitely a spinoff of some of the work that's been done by iGEM. I don't know if you've ever heard of the iGEM competition, um, which mm -hmm. is the Synthetic Biology College um, competition. And several of her labs are based off of former iGEM projects. So um, the idea was that using these labs, you could teach synthetic biology principles to students and then a few years after she started introducing these labs, she started to sponsor and host this um, BioBuilder Club where you can do this as an extracurricular. So there's, if you become a BioBuilder Club and you pay the registration fee, they send you out one of the kits. So there's one of them's called um, Ooh That Smell, which is you use, um, there's a banana smell generating device inside E. coli. Um, and so you get different and the, and there's different um, synthetic biology parts in there um, to and then you sort of smell and evaluate how do the different part combinations work to produce the banana smell rather as and then you have an, an E. coli control that you will smell. And so the students think critically about both bacterial growth because it's a it's supposed to turn on. The bacterial, the while the bacteria is growing through certain phases, it's supposed to produce the the smell better than other times. Um, so you can look at the design, you can look at how they design the system, you can think about how you might design the system a little bit better. But it's definitely using this bacterial growth curve producing bananas, and evaluate there. There's also a transformation lab. Um, which is what a colorful world where similar to almost all other transformations, you take a color plasmid and you put it in bacteria, but you actually take two different types of color plasmids and you put it into two different strains of E. coli bacteria. And then you're evaluating both the reporter of the color and the chassis of the, um, of the E. coli so that these different strains of E. coli operate as different chassis um, to deliver these different components. Hmm. And then another one is called the iTunes Lab. And the iTunes Lab is um, literally you grow all of these different uh, bacteria with different strength um, promoters and different strength ribosome binding sites. So it's like all of these different combinations to evaluate um, color generation. And you can either use uh, color samples. I think I've used paint chip samples of different yellowness um, as a as a qualitative, or you can use a spectrophotometer um, to evaluate uh, the growth combinations between these two um, the, the different strength between the ribosome binding site and the promoter to evaluate how they end up going and producing uh, the color that's involved. Um, and so those are the, like the base, those are the standard kits. And there's a couple of other kits that um, she's played around with. Um, I know that she's worked on this uh, orange yeast, one that produces vitamin A, which is called Vita yeast, which I've played around with as well, um, where you look at a unstable um, beta carotene pathway. And so what happens is over generations, the orange yeast turns red because they stop producing the last um, gene. And so they produce lycopene instead of the beta carotene, or they yeah. lose two lines down the pathway. And so they produce yellow. 
um, or they lose all of those color generations and they end up being white like you would expect uh, yeast to be in there. So there's all these like fascinating labs. Um, So you can buy all of these kits. uh, I don't know if the yeast kit's available yet, but it will be soon. But they're all sold through Carolina. And if you become a club, they send you one of these kits as part of your registration along with the book that has all the synthetic biology principles. And so what I'll do is I'll basically do a series of activities to introduce synthetic biology to my students the first couple of days. And then I brain, have them brainstorm. I say, I want you to come up with problems in the world that need solving. And I want you to just brainstorm that. And so they come up with, and we do this chalk talk brainstorming. They come with all the different examples. We, we then vote on them. And then we vote down to the top handful. And then I basically tell the students, if you think that one of these five is really important, you need to go out and come up with the research. And I want you to be able to stand up and explain to the group why we should do this. And if you don't care which one we do, don't have to do anything. But if you care which one we do, you should do it. And usually a couple of my leaders will go and research. And and so last year, uh, I had one group that wanted to study um, plastic degradation. Uh, specifically, they had known that plastic in oceans was an issue. And one of them found a paper that was published last year about the discovery of a PET ACE. And so what they wanted to do was build a, uh, a plastic degradation system that could possibly be used in helping to remove plastics from waterways and that sort of stuff. And so they then designed a synthetic system that would detect plastic and degrade the plastic and then looked at what those products would be and then how would you mitigate that down the line. And the other group has been working on, for a couple of years, we have had the splinter destruction system uh, or the splinter killer system. So the idea is if you get a wood splinter in your hand, it's painful. It sometimes leads to infections. How could you get it out? And they wanted to create a um, a film or like a bandage that would have a, a bacterial system in that would produce the enzymes to break down the lignin and uh, the, the components in wood, break it down, and in that would actually produce alcohol as a byproduct of that degradation. So it actually would be an antiseptic property and oh. would dissolve the, uh, the splinter in your hand, um, or, you know, without having to dig it out with a needle or anything like that. So that was the system. And actually it was a two year system that they worked on. Um, so you design the systems, you put them together, um, similar to smart teams. Uh, uh, you do, a, you have a mini poster opportunity and we can go in and present at, um, the final assembly, which is at, uh, is at Lab Central in Cambridge. And so all of the teams go in. There's a vir- There are virtual presenters, so people who can't travel to Boston. But we actually do have teams that travel from... We have a team that, that's from the Chicago area, for, from actually a little outside of Chicago in Illinois, who comes out every year, brings a group of students, flies into Cambridge and presents theirs. And uh, we had students from California who've fl- flown out, and, and they come. And students do a lightning talk. Um, to the whole group and then they stand at their posters and then other students and professors and researchers in the synthetic biology field walk around and they ask students questions and they get to present that and then for the last two years then we've written journal articles about our research project uh, for a student organization or student uh, focused journal called biotrex so Mm -hmm. that is a they public they're able to then work on the idea of publishing a paper based off of there and then they go through the process of producing a manuscript getting some peer review they do a virtual conference where people can come in and comment on your your draft in manuscript and then you have a couple like i think three or four weeks after that to finalize your paper take that feedback and do that Um, mostly it's a design group 
but you can, um, especially if you do a project over multiple years, you can actually build the mm. system. You can get the DNA parts and put them on a plasmid and try to see if you can, t you know, you know, build and then test part of your system. We've done a little, we've twice, we've gotten to the point where we've tried to build and test something with some results um, in there. You know, it's hard to do those type of things in a high school, but um, it's very engaging from this, the design side and the students definitely dive deep into literature, lit, uh, lit review and um, writing and scientific writing and presentation skills. And um, just like you said, we got freshmen who, don't know anything. Um, and we've got, you know, seniors who are mm -hmm. planning on going to college to study synthetic uh, biology. Um, and I've had the whole gamut from uh, high school students. So it's a really cool program. I think this year is going to be our, I did have one iGEM team. And then this, I think is our fourth year doing uh, the BioBuilders Club. That's fantastic. So. It, it def definitely sounds like many aspects of it is very similar to smart teams. Yeah. And, uh, you know, students diving really deep. And I, I love how we get a chance to interact with researchers and a chance to, and I don't know if your, your kids have an opportunity to, but we, we get a chance to visit the research labs at CU Boulder. And so through the, the processes that scientists use to uh, visualize proteins and gather data about proteins, we get to visit the you know, the x-ray crystallography room and to see the NMR spectroscopy machine oh, and, wow. you know, some of those things and, and how and meet the graduate students who are the, you know, in the lab. Yeah, we get a mentor who's usually either a graduate student or somebody who works in the field. And then mm -hmm. um, we go into Lab Central. I bring a small group and usually into Lab Central a couple of times. And that has all kinds of biotech companies in there. And they actually now have, uh, starting last spring, they actually have a learning lab inside Lab Central where um, we are actually can go in and uh, if there is a some bench work that we want to do um, that might be challenging to do in the high school student, we may actually, uh, you know, for high school students in a high school setting, um, we can go in there and do some of the work there. Um, and so we actually, before it was officially launched, um, we, I actually brought a group of students in there last year when they were in their ramp up time. And so we're actually hoping to be able to do that again. And then right in that neighborhood, you do have, you know, a lot of the synthetic biology companies are in that area. So I'm hoping that as we we go down this line that those type of experiences will be available to students as well. Right. That's great. That's great that those connections. Um, we definitely look for ways to connect students with uh, industry. Uh, yeah. For example, pharmaceutical uh, companies here in Colorado or research labs. I think, you know, as our, part of our role as teachers is to sort of help those, help our students make those connections that they wouldn't have otherwise thought to do or had, knew that there's opportunities for. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a, a huge part of what we do. And again, you know, just like I mentioned with the colleges, I'm totally spoiled here um, because we are, you know, a 40 minute train ride from Cambridge uh, from my high school. So, uh, and the commuter rail does go right through my town. So uh, the kids can walk. It's just over a mile to the train station from the high school. And then you get on that train and you know, they can go in and do job shadowing and, and visit. I do send a, a lot of kids into the city to, to get those experiences. So, um, yeah. All right. So, uh, we have got two picks of the episode and, uh, not surprising looking at yours, what you've picked as your pick of the episode, but Chris, what's your, uh, pick of the episode? Uh, mine is a resource called the protein data bank and they have educational materials available for, for teachers and students and so it's called PDB 101, 
And every month they have a publication out where they highlight a molecule of the month. Uh, so this month, the molecule is, or at least for uh, September, it's phytase. And so they show the, the 3D model of phytase. You can even rotate it within this platform and see it in 3D format. Um, and, and they also tell the story of phytase, why it's important and applications of it. So when you, when you browse some of the other molecules of the month, you'll find uh, molecules you've heard of, ones like insulin, hemoglobin. Um, and then, you know, it's a great resource if, if you're wanting students to kind of look into the biological story of these different molecules, many common ones that we teach in biology class. So I definitely mm -hmm. wanted to, to highlight this resource if teachers haven't seen it before. Yeah. And there's a lot of uh, embedded JMOL um, in there, which is the really fancy program that allows you to break down uh, proteins and dive deep in there. And you, if you learn your JMOL and there's a lot of cheat sheets out there. So I would recommend if you ever go down that road, just Google JMOL cheat sheet because, <laughs> or instructions. Uh, but you can do really cool things. Like you can highlight all of the hydrogen bonds in a molecule or highlight all of the, um, you know, hydrophobic regions or hydrophilic regions. And particularly at the AP level, I find that some of the stories of these molecules and why they are where they are and how they work and how they interact with other things, um, you can actually help students unpack that from the molecular reasoning. Like that it's not arbitrary. There are mm -hmm. molecular reasons behind why these interactions take place. And, and JMOL actually gives you the ability um, or maybe for a student who's interested um, <laughs> to dive deep in and, and explore these. And uh, yeah, it's a very cool resource. I definitely use this. Uh, I do a protein project with my AP students and we access a lot of the PDB stuff. So that's good stuff. All right. So um, mine, I, I, you know, I was back and forth with a couple of things, but then I thought about what I was doing this weekend um, and I was like booking NABT 2018. So uh, this is going to come out the first week of October and it's still time. You still have time to listening to this to go and register yourself to go to San Diego um, and and to book your trips. And so um, that's what I was doing this weekend was lining up like my airfare and figuring it out. And um, I have uh, our Veterans Day is being observed on the Monday after it. So um, it's going to be I'm going to fly out and uh, it's going to be, you know, not too many days to miss. And then I have a, a day to recover after I fly back from the West Coast. Uh, so uh, I'm excited about it. Do you have the opportunity to get out to San Diego this year? I know not everyone gets out every year. I will. Yes. So I'll be there in San Diego as well. Awesome. And I actually have a couple of uh, workshops that I'll be uh, presenting. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I have one on um, using breakout EDU breakout boxes yep. uh, in the classroom. And the other one is um, a lab using uh, miracle berries and talking about taste receptors and, and cell communication. So Neat. yeah, if you I, want it. You know? I've used I've used both of those. I use I use the breakout box. That's my uh, uh -huh. that's my get to know you for my honors biology. Um, is that I walk up and I hand a script and I put I, I lock their syllabus in the breakout box, um, and then they they have to use the breakout edu and I have clues around the room and things they have tasks they have to do um, to figure out the puzzle to get the combination lock. Um, that that's in there and that's something i've used the last couple of years uh for my first day of honors biology um the last couple of years but 
I definitely would like to learn other ways I could possibly use it because I have that kit. And I did Miracle Berries with my alternative program kids uh, last year. And we did a whole um, taste receptor lab where they they did a, a CER uh, where they were trying to figure out if they were going to be able to tell the difference. They were going to be able to tell citrus fruits apart. Um, oh, after taking the miracle berries. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we went through the process and we talked about the miracle berry and then they came up with the idea um, that about tasting it. And then they thought their thoughts were that it was going to totally twist their, their view on uh, view on it. And so when they had people take the miracle berry and then taste the citrus fruit, they wouldn't be able to tell the difference because they're all different same. And then they realized, no, there's a lot of other things that are in the citrus fruits that clue in their, their taste receptors. And we had some really neat, uh, follow-up conversations about taste and taste receptors. And um, I actually rolled that into a PTC lab um, afterwards too, because it was a, it was an really nice tie in there um, from a taste receptor and, and gene standpoint. So, Great idea. Um, Great idea. But I still, there's always more to learn. So I'd love to, I haven't done this with my AP students. So I'd love to figure out how I could tie this to signal transduction. Cause I didn't do signal transduction with my, my intro alternative program right. kids, but mm-hmm. so uh, learning those other resources would be cool. So yeah, I know that John Darko is going to be doing two talks as well. So you're now, I, I know two people who are doing two talks now <laughs> out in San Diego. So, all right. So uh, yeah, register, go. <laughs> we'll we'll all be there. Uh, it's gonna be a good seat. The land of IPAs. So uh, <laughs> we'll be it down. is we'll not be as down. good as Colorado though. We have we I think the best craft beers here. <laughs> uh, so I'm gonna say I think you got great craft beers, but um, yeah, I mean you got great pale ales out there. You've got great beer diversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you got crooked staves out there too. Uh, so I got some wild stuff, but I don't know. Just straight out West Coast IPAs, I think uh, San Diego might have you beat. So uh, I don't know. We'll have to do some sampling. We'll have to collect, <laughs> we'll have to collect some data. <laughs> collect some data, right. <laughs> yeah. All right, Chris. Well, thank you for joining me. Let me read my show notes. Um, you can support this episode by going to patreon.com slash lots. Uh, I do early releases of my shows um, on a Slack community that Patreons of myself, John Darko, and David Knufke are members of that Patreon, of any of our Patreons get invited in there. And then I release my uh, show my show audio a little early to them. I also post up my show notes on my Patreon uh, website as well. Music for this and every episode are available from Jake Jenkins and Exigitions. You can also get my show notes on lifeoftheschool.org and past episodes are posted up there as well. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. You are also on Twitter. Isn't that correct, Chris? I am LHS underscore Chow. At LHS <laughs> underscore Chow. But that's not easy for me to say. I will <laughs> add a link to that uh, into the show notes as well so you can follow uh, Chris as well. So thanks again for joining me, Chris, and I will talk to everybody soon. 